In the history of bare minimum scholarship in Bible has never gone very well for faith because there's hardly anything you can't strip away if you just want to be skeptical enough. I believe that taking the Bible seriously means taking the communicative intent of the authors of the Bible seriously on the way to hearing the voice of God to the church through that. Hello and welcome to Faith at the Frontiers, a podcast that confronts challenges to the Christian faith with hope. This episode is part of our series on faith and the challenges of history. In the previous two episodes, we've interviewed Bible scholars who expressed some doubts about the historical reliability of parts of the Old Testament. In this episode, we interview someone with quite a different view who thinks there are good reasons to trust the history reported in the Bible. Professor Ian Proven taught both me and Austin Old Testament at Regent College, Vancouver, before he retired. And now in his writing and speaking, he seeks to equip the church to respond to cultural trends from a biblically rooted perspective. I hope you enjoy listening. To, to start the conversation, I'd be curious to hear, reflecting on your discipline, what do you think historically, but also maybe in, in particularly today, what are the main challenges that are presented by historical study of the Old Testament to Christian faith? Well, I can think of two to begin with. One of them is just the very strong tendency to dichotomy and separation of disciplines and so on. And so what is the Old Testament in general to do with Christian faith would be one of the questions here. And of course, that's a question that's bigger just than modernity. Um, the church has had a quite an uneasy relationship with the Old Testament, I think, in many ways through the ages. But it's taken on a particular shape now with the kind of the, the modern university and disciplinary boundaries and so on. And so I, th I think um, one of the challenges is just to, to even deepen and widen that separation and make it appear that the only proper way to study the Old Testament is by itself in isolation from a particular point of view. And then you leave it up to those people who have religious faith to somehow then go and make connections if they want to. So that's uh, probably a fair description of how things are in much of the academy. So you're saying that the, the Old Testament is sort of separated off from its context as a document for belonging to a people of faith or to a religious community? It, it, indeed, and not just that. I mean, that's true. So there's a dichotomy between the two parts of Scripture. But uh, I think even beyond that, a sense of impropriety, even about New Testament scholars, uh, you know, that conversation, a sense that, as somebody once said, it's a bit like reading somebody else's mail. And so the point is to get yourself into the mindset only of those who received the mail first time around, and that that excludes any Christian theology or, or reflection. It's, um, so all of that is part of the problem. And then in terms of your interests, of course, the way in which the Old Testament studied uh, or has, particularly in the last while, last several decades, has appeared to many people to throw up, to throw into question the historicality of quite important events like the Exodus. And, and in some people's views, of course, the whole darn thing, not, not just events 
of very ancient times, but in some ways of thinking, the entire thing is really a fiction. So there's nothing to be gained of history in it, which, of course, for Christian faith, I think is very problematic. Yeah. So just the idea in modern historical scholarship that the Old Testament shouldn't be taken seriously as a as saying anything about stuff that actually happened. So when you add all of that up, you have two things. The Old Testament shouldn't be taken seriously on history, but by the way, the Old Testament shouldn't really be taken seriously by Christians at all. And indeed, it's quite inappropriate for Christians to try to, because it's a bit like what we nowadays call cultural appropriation or something like that. Because it really belongs to the Jewish people and not to Christians at all. Indeed. And of course, that has been made more pointy by the the right concern about the history of anti-Semitism and all that kind of thing. So there are things in the last while that have made these questions even more emotionally charged, shall we say. Mm. Yeah, it's a, something I actually hear my students voice quite often is their frustration with feeling like they're not allowed to read texts in the Old Testament as if they could apply to them and really wrestling with are we can we do that should we not do that what <laughs> um yeah I, I, it's been interesting to hear them really um really struggling with and hearing feeling quite clearly from somewhere that that's that's something they shouldn't be doing so what what would you say is how would you start with a christian response to the uh, this idea so either of those problems that the problem that as a christian you shouldn't really be reading the old testament anyway I think the best answer to that question is to point out what I believe to be true, that our Lord himself gave us these scriptures to read as scripture, live scripture addressing the church. And indeed, the apostles naturally, since they were Christians, <laughs> followed the same line. And you get the apostle Paul putting it very straightforwardly in a text like 2 Timothy 3.16, you know, all scripture, etc., by which, of course, he mainly was referring to the Old Testament. In fact, entirely was referring to the Old Testament because there were no other documents at that time that were in the ballgame. So it's actually the it's more puzzling the other way when you think about it, how we ever got to this point, because it seems so obvious that it's part of our discipleship as Christians, part of the lordship that we confess that we should receive the scriptures we have been given for the purposes for which they've been given. And I, I think if, if this is also, I think it's the best answer. I think it's also the most effective answer I've come across for helping other people wrestle with this because you're, you're beginning from within the circle of faith and moving outwards. And then you see it's not inappropriate. In fact, the other thing is more inappropriate <laughs> to, to deny the obvious connection. Yeah, that's a very interesting answer. So it's sort of just saying, well, actually, Christianity never saw itself as non-Jewish from the start. Like It saw itself as a manifestation of Judaism that happens to believe that the Messiah has come and that we should pay attention to what he said. And so, I mean, I guess it gets complicated because then it decided to include all of the Gentiles and then it spun off and, and is now more Gentile than Jewish in its demographic. So perhaps that's where the charge of anti-Semitism can arise. But if you just remember the original roots of Christianity as just a spin-off of Judaism, then it's no longer seen as cultural appropriation. Indeed. And, and I think one of the things people don't really allow to impress them enough is that 
the apostles writing to all these churches that were mainly Gentile, quoted the Old Testament constantly, assumed that these Gentiles had appropriated as their scripture, that there was a common ground to be appealed to, and didn't make any concessions either. <laughs> you don't see the Apostle Paul saying, by the way, I know this is very difficult for you because you're Greeks, you know, but we've really got to, and I apologize, <laughs> I apologize a bit, but we've really got to try and wrestle with, you know, the Abrahamic covenant. None of that. It's the, the Gentiles are already assumed in the New Testament writings to have been grafted in, you know, and uh, to the vine. And these are the scriptures. And the assumption of the entire literature is that everyone understands that. So again, when you begin to think this through, you realize that the strange thing is we've ever come to think the other thing. This is the obvious thing to think, I, I believe. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But it does lead to your second difficulty, which has to do with the historicity of the Old Testament. And here we've we've already heard in previous episodes of this podcast takes takes on that which may not be quite the same as your own. We had one scholar tell us that you don't as a Christian need to believe that much of the Old Testament actually happened. Perhaps the only thing you really need to believe happened is the Exodus itself. But apart from that, the rest of it may or may not have happened, and it looks as if it didn't happen because... That's not my view. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I believe that taking the Bible seriously means taking the communicative intent of the authors of the Bible seriously on the way to hearing the voice of God to the church through that. So fundamentally, it does matter what people intend to be, what they seem to want to be telling you about. And if they appear to be wanting to tell you about God actually acting in history, then we have to take that very seriously. And I don't think we should be engaging in the game of how little can we get away with (laughs) believing before we hit a minimum, because that just seems inappropriate. That's not listening to the voices of the authors, I, I think. So I, well, I guess that... you could also say that we're not necessarily interested in minimal Christianity and doing the bare minimum to get back to count as Christian. We want the fullness of Christianity, right? Well, indeed, yeah. and the history of bare minimum scholarship in Bible has never gone very well for faith because there's hardly anything you can't strip away if you just want to be skeptical enough, right? And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, and we may get onto that in a moment with regard to historical method because this idea that... Um, we just keep stripping away until we find the bedrock, you know. Well, the trouble is you'll never find the bedrock by that means. It's a self-defeating way of approaching knowledge, I think. And not a very, not at all a Christian way of approaching knowledge either, which is very much about trust, faith, seeking, understanding. It's the other way around. Yeah, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that in terms of how it impacts what it means to study history. Because this is very, very common, right? This sense of the, I mean, the, skept, the skeptical approach of just we need to, how do we strip away all the extraneous stuff and mm-hmm. find sort of the, this little core? What's the what's the minimum? And that is, I mean, the methods are really, really built to say, you know, how do we sort of remove our subjectivity? How do we remove um, all these liabilities and get to some some kind of objective bedrock here? But if, if we have a kind of different understanding of knowledge, how does that impact for you what it means to study history? Yes, I mean, I I have a problem with what's called 
by many people historical method because I think it's incoherent. And I'm not prepared just to roll over, as it were, and accept that because a lot of people think so, it must be the case. The mm -hmm. key here, and I've written a bit about this, the key is this idea of verification, that you cannot behave as if you have secure knowledge unless you can verify something by another piece of secure knowledge. But the problem, of course, is you then have to verify that piece of secure knowledge. And so you go on ad infinitum. It doesn't work. It's a kind of form of delusion. What happens is that people arbitrarily stop somewhere is what really happens. And enough other people arbitrarily stop with them. And that's what's called in academic life a consensus. Uh, <laughs> and uh, that's just not what's really going on is not what people believe or claim is going on. It's not a description of how we know either. It's not a credible description of how we know because almost the great majority of what we claim to know, we know because we trust other people when they tell us things. Uh, that applies to our the way we live our lives every day, but it also applies to, to the past. So the real question is, which sources of information do we trust and why? And then over the course of time, we may find reasons to adjust that and sometimes, unfortunately, even to reject things that we originally trusted and now we think we have reason not to. But that, I think, is a, a viable way of approaching what we call epistemology. I don't think the other way is, um, is viable. And this is why the history of the modern study of the history of Israel has been a history of um, abandoning one after the other stopping points because somebody stands up in the crowd and says, the emperor has no clothes, folks. You know, you just haven't been scholarly enough. And before you know where you are, history completely vanishes in a puff of smoke. Well, that's that's a very um, helpful perspective, a helpful starting point. Although I, I wonder if what I've heard you say is, is you're going to agree with if I reflect it back to you, because it sounds as if what you're saying is it's just a choice. We, we, to, we either trust the Old Testament or we don't trust the Old Testament. We've not got any good reason not got any external reason to trust or distrust it. So just to be a Christian means to trust it. And that sounds as if you're almost denying the possibility of any external historical inquiry that could sort of provide an objective measure of whether the Old Testament is trustworthy or not. We all, I think, in proceeding, even if you accept what I've just said about how we know and how we proceed without thinking mm -hmm. very much about it, it doesn't mean that we don't at least unless we're very unwise or mad, it doesn't mean we don't allow external reality to push back and we test, don't we? We test whether things are true. And if we find a lack of convergence between things, we're wise to explore that and to try and get to the bottom of it. What is it we haven't understood yet that we need to understand and all of that? All I'm saying is that I think the same thing goes for historical sources. Um, and I don't mean just the Bible, actually. I mean, if I'm right on this, it's the way we ought to approach all historical matters. And indeed, I think a lot of biblical scholarship, modern biblical scholarship, is out of step with how most people have and still do approach historical sources. It's almost a, an anti-faith move rather than a move into objectivity and, and academic scholarship sometimes, I believe. I mean, you look at why people think they know what they know about ancient Egypt or ancient Rome for that matter. 
and, and you discover that uh, the scholars there are not applying the same kind of rules to that as biblical scholars are applying. If they did, most ancient history would disappear in a puff of smoke, actually. So That's very yeah, interesting. Reason, reasonable, a reasonable approach, a rational approach, not an arbitrary approach. Of course, we can't just dismiss truth where we find it. It does lead on to inquiry. But it makes a big difference to how you end up writing your biblical history of Israel. I, I don't think the one that I helped to write is arbitrary in its presentation, but it is different because we're taking a, a, a convergence approach beginning from a kind of upfront trust in sources, not actually special pleading from a Christian point of view, actually. So I hope that makes sense to, in clarifying what I'm not saying and what I am saying. But if, yeah. if, if it's not if it's not clear, push back, of course. No, I mean it, it, it's clear enough, although it does lead to further questions because it seems that the, if one decides to take seriously the, any historical source, including the Bible, that presupposes that we have judged correctly what the intention of the authors was, whether they were intending to write history or not. And for the uninitiated audience here, Austin and I were both students of Ian Provin many years ago, and we read, I don't know, actually, I don't know if you read Biblical History of Israel. I read it. And I also read critical reviews of it, one of which was really quite mean and not actually that scholarly, but it tried to say that doing a Biblical History of Israel is like doing a Homeric history of ancient Greece suggesting that actually we should just take Homer's Iliad, if we apply the same principles, we should take Homer's Iliad as literal historical fact in the same way. How would you respond to that sort of a pushback? Well, I, I would respond by saying that it's discussing or avoiding discussing the real question here, which is this issue of communicative intent and also reasonable confidence that people are able to fulfill their intent, which is the other side of that. But I mean, I, in terms of the analogy or the comparison here between Greek texts and the Bible, the fact of the matter is there is no literature from the ancient world that's so obsessed with history as the Old Testament. And a number of very bright Old Testament scholars, perhaps even mainly Jewish scholars, I'm not sure whether that's true, but the one I'm thinking of is Jewish anyway, points this out, that we're dealing with, with a literature here that's unique in its commitment to the issue of history, the conviction that God acts in real history, the constant uh, genealogies, the constant reference to locations and events associated with them. I, I just think we are evidently not dealing with the same kind of thing in these two cases, right? So, but you're quite right, trying to form a sober judgment on the intent of authors is indeed the key to the whole business of taking any literature seriously, including ancient literature. I find it very hard to believe that, that well, no, I can't say that because people do. So let me rephrase that. I was, going to, I was going to say, I find it very difficult to believe that anyone could, in fact, deny the Exodus. But of course, lots of people do. So that's a silly way of putting it. So let, let me re retreat into the territory we're in here. Is there any doubt that the Israelites believe the Exodus to be an historical event? I mean, think how often it gets referenced, for gosh sakes. Remember, you were slaves in Egypt. Therefore, it's all over the place. It drives your ethics. It drives the way you talk about your, your present and your future. 
There's no question in my mind as to what the ancient Israelites believed about the Exodus. Mm. There's a very interesting argument put down by someone who's not actually a, an Old Testament scholar at all, Marilyn Robinson, the author of Gilead. She, she did some lectures at Cambridge on uh, Old Testament history from a literary perspective. And she just said, look, ancient cultures didn't tend to invent stories in which they themselves were slaves. It's a rather embarrassing, <laughs> shameful thing to have to admit about yourself if it wasn't historically true. No, indeed, I'm very sympathetic to that view. I think that's exactly right, that one of the ways in which the Old Testament is also unique is precisely that it's not about gods and heroes in, in, the, in the older. It's not just the Greeks either, right? The whole ancient Near Eastern environment is really about god kings and the, them trying to show you that they are and to, to buy support from the gods. And it's really largely what we would call propaganda, which, by the way, doesn't mean ancient historians don't use it to try and get to history, interestingly enough. But anyway, so even in literature that's not trying very hard to be what we call historical, doesn't mean you can't use it as a window into history. At least that's what the Syriologists and Egyptian Egyptologists typically believe. And of course, the other thing is connected to this, this is a story about ordinary people predominantly. It's not predominantly a story about kings and stuff, right? It's, it's ordinary people in this narrative who make the running, people like you and me, really. So this is unique literature, unique ancient literature. There's nothing like it. And historic, an interest in history, a deep interest in history is central to that uniqueness. And it is, I think, I think it's interesting that underlying some of these different, how we might evaluate precisely what are they trying to intend with this text I mean, in some ways, that's the hard question of the discipline, right? So a lot of Old Testament scholars are saying these were written much later for political purposes in a specific time period. And what these texts tell us about is these much later um, Jewish people. And the assumption underlying that is what typically drives people, right? What typically motivates people? There's a strong assumption here about, I think, like human action that that is, I think, maybe one of the key underlying questions about how we understand why would someone write these things down in the past? Yes, but the thing is that those things are not mutually exclusive either, right? So you can have traditions from the past that accurately pass on historical events, and you can have people later on in, I don't know, King Josiah's reign or whatever. That's one of the guys who's normally picked, and I have sympathy with that. You can also have people summing up bringing out of a number of different narratives, a kind of national epic or whatever you want to call it. Uh, the tradition says Moses is the first person actually to do that. And I see no reason to doubt that myself. Moses is exactly the kind of fellow you would expect to be able to do it back in his time period. It's a bit like the old exam question I remember from my undergraduate days. You know, if Moses did not exist, you would need to invent him to discuss and I mean, that's, that's a very interesting point, right? He's left his mark all over the thing, hasn't he? So, yes, these things are not mutually exclusive. And, of course, again, there's no end to this because eventually you get people saying wildly implausible things like uh, all of this was written, you know, in like, I don't know, fourth century Greece or something. <laughs> it has no connection to anything. And you're thinking, really? I mean, does it look to you like a story written in the Hellenistic period, if you know anything about the Hellenistic period, 
The other favorite is the Persian period. It was written in the Persian period. Well, that's very convenient because we hardly know hardly anything about the Persian period. So you can say almost anything you like about what was going on in literary circles in the Persian period, and nobody can contradict you. So as you can see, I don't have a considerable amount of patience with some of this to be. <laughs> and maybe it's because I'm now getting older and even crankier than I was when I first got into trouble with people with that book. But um, I, I haven't well, how, changed how my fundamental that? convictions on these matters. So. Yeah, but I mean, you, I, I think you also are a card-carrying Old Testament scholar, um, especially within the Christian community. I would say that you represent uh a voice, or within the theological community as well, you represent a voice that actually is more inclined towards what we might call the historical critical method than various other Christians. So, so far, all you've been doing is criticizing it, but I want to hear you say a little bit, add some balance to that picture. Well, let me add the balance from the bigger perspective. In the same way that science tells you a lot of really good stuff and important stuff in its domain, so if you want to call it science, although it's not hard science, experimental science, but let's call it a sober, disciplined, rational approach based on as much observation as you can manage and some you know, empirical method and so on, recognizing that, of course, when you're dealing with ancient texts, you're not doing quite the same thing as a chemist in a lab is doing mm. or not very close yeah. at all. So it's analogously science, we might say. But I think what we mean is this kind of attempt at impartial description, you know, allowing the facts to be the facts as you establish them. And I'm utterly committed to all of that because it would be counterproductive and fruitless to be against it. And what is true is true. And it must, from a Christian point of view, must fit somewhere within the whole orbit of truth, right? I'm not against science in its own domain, and I'm not against a kind of quasi-scientific approach to history in its domain. The problem is much of that is confused with metaphysics and people don't realize it. It's very common in the Guild of Biblical Studies to hear people say things like, you know, that's philosophy and we, we, don't, we don't do that here or something like that. You know, we're just about reading texts and objective facts and stuff. And there's an incredible lack of self-awareness about the way in which metaphysics is messing with everything. And it's messing even more with it because you don't see it. You haven't brought it up for examination. So I'm very interested in science and, and an objective approach to the past, but I want it to be credibly connected to philosophy, epistemology, metaphysics in general, and so on. And of course, science has its own domain and cannot tell you about a whole bunch of really crucially important things about humanness, for example just to take a different topic, right? So the limitations of, of this approach to the world are very often not recognized, largely because people don't have anything else to go with. And so you go with this, and it needs to become an all-encompassing uh, way of thinking about reality, because you don't really have a viable alternative, I think. So... If you, I think if we were going to build on that insight, which I think is really, really helpful, right? Like this is the 
this is a conversation happening in so many realms. We have certain scientific approaches. They really want to go beyond the bounds of what they can technically speak about. And we're trying to think about how do we more fruitfully put them in conversation with other things. And for this, I think one of the questions this raises is, you know, when you say we have to be aware of the sort of metaphysical assumptions and the broader kind of epistemology, is that, how does that come in for you? So is that coming from, we're sort of, maybe think of like McIntyre and sort of we have, we all have a kind of traditioned approach to things. Is there a kind of foundationalism here where you're saying we just need to make the metaphysical arguments on a purely philosophical plane and then do the history? How do you tend to think about how these I guess it's it's one thing to say that everybody has a metaphysics, another thing to say what your metaphysics is. (laughs) Yes, well, I mean, I, I think though that this is where we are in a better position in many ways in the academy now, because one thing that postmodernity has done for us all is to make us a a little bit more aware of the way in which we all inhabit a tradition or are telling a story and we have a narrative. I'm not going to overemphasize that. It hasn't made a lot of difference, but it's, it's it's made some difference. And so it is now slightly more respectable than it used to be, and only slightly, for me to say, look, I'm a Christian. I'm coming at this from a Christian point of view. I think I'm just as interested as you are in what's true and everything else historically in other ways. But it would be foolish of us not to recognize you and I, whoever I'm talking to, that where we're coming from and our view of how we know stuff, for example, doesn't deeply influence our judgments in these matters. Doesn't mean we can't converse. Doesn't mean we we can't agree, in fact, on a whole bunch of things about what the facts are. But as soon as you get into, get into particularly things like evaluation of the facts, how far the facts go, what are the various ways in which the facts can be construed, it's naive for any of us to think that where we're starting from, our tradition, our narrative, our philosophy doesn't have profound consequences. Each of us would be wise at all times to be open to the possibility of being wrong. And we're unwise if we construct a kind of... Um, foundation for that that doesn't in fact allow us to discover that we're wrong that 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 would just be very very foolish right and i guess i guess the point is you're also saying it's just not a disadvantage to be a christian that that doesn't give you a sort of warped perspective on the historical research of the old testament that being an atheist is no better or worse if you're approaching atheism is a dogmatic faith right i mean agnosticism might be a better example in a way but of course even there does that mean you have no convictions about anything no it it doesn't does it mean you don't have a general way of approaching reality well of course it doesn't right so it would be a lot better if we could have conversations about these things but we're now moving into a cultural period where we can't have conversations about anything because we're all locked into our tribes with no possibility of discovering we're wrong. That seems to be part of the point at the moment is that you will never ever be able to be contradicted by anybody. And you're deliberately constructing tribes that prevent that from happening. Well, this podcast is very committed to trying to break down some of those. Echo yeah, chambers. Well, good for you. We've interviewed people from across the political spectrum. But it's interesting, you say, you say you're doing, you're approaching this as a Christian but of course, not every Christian approaches the Bible in the same way either. So do you have anything to say about the history of your own method? Do you think that the way you approach the Bible is the way Christians have always approached the Bible from the beginning? Or do you think that it, there's a certain 
development in the tradition of Bible reading that you're a part of? I think I'm approaching the Bible in the way that the clearest headed Christians have approached it historically. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, that's self-evident. <laughs> yeah, uh, obviously, that's what I would say, right? But for example, I think almost pretty much everything that I would believe about the right way of reading the Bible is already to be found in St. Augustine's On Christian Doctrine for example. Now, I know that St. Augustine also did other things. And, you know, he was a little bit more kind of open to certain ways of reading that I would think are problematic. But it is quite astounding when you read on Christian doctrine, how, as it were, modern he sounds. But of course, that's just because by and large, we're ignorant, right? And we don't know what the Christians before us were actually doing in all of the diversity of what they were doing. And uh, one of the things is that very bold claims are made about the Christian tradition, which further analysis suggests are simplistic at best and perhaps even wrong. And as both of you know, I've written a very long and expensive book on this topic <laughs> called the Reformation and the right reading of Scripture, because I do think the right reading of Scripture is something we should all be aiming at. And something which apparently, at least according to the book title, emerges in fiscal clarity in the Reformation? Well, the Reformers, I think, were doing what they said they were doing, which was re retrieving the best of Christian tradition. They, they constantly were saying that to anybody who would listen, not least because it was a matter of survival that they would actually be able to show the rich and powerful that they were still in the tradition. But um, there's a reason why Augustine is so important there. And it's not just um, things like justification by faith and, and all of that. It's to do with um, that long Bible reading tradition that, at least in a foundational sense, puts the literal sense of the text at the heart of the enterprise. And then you have a spectrum from there about, you know, how far do you then go? And it goes through to people like Origen, who are very much on, you know, one end of that spectrum, because I, as far as I can tell from Origen, he He's like a butterfly. He touches down very briefly on a literal reading, only to fly off immediately somewhere else. <laughs> but that, but um, I'm rather prejudiced on on Origen. I think I, for I, reasons. Well, I could say a few things about Origen right now, but I'll let Austin say something instead. Ah. <laughs> yeah, it's a. I mean, it's. A, I think it's such a. It raises such an interesting questions. I think when we we do because you're right. It's really easy to say. The Christian tradition does this. And I think all of us who have done detailed work in the patristic period or the medieval period, we realize there's a lot of really interesting diversity, but also there's there are some kind of common similarities. I mean, one of the, you know, one of the big kind of criticisms that people might put toward modern historical criticism is, you know, we've developed these supposedly scientific methods, but they never give us the same result twice. Mm -hmm. Whereas most ancient, say, patristic commentators, they give us surprisingly similar readings, even when they're doing like kind of wild seeming allegorical approaches to scripture or that kind of thing, right? So that's, mm -hmm. I think, an interesting kind of back and forth. And and so how do you think about what are the key bits in that you're kind of retrieving from that kind of tradition? Do you see that as like a, there's a core here that's being pulled out by the Reformation? Or is it just there are specific elements from here and there and we're kind of putting them together into something? Yeah, I, I would want to make the argument that at the core of Christian reading right from the New Testament onwards, and of course in the Old Testament itself, 
the core of that is attention to the human authors and what they intended to say as the means of hearing God. And that's what I mean by the literal sense. I don't mean you can't use metaphors and symbols and all of that, but I do mean attending to what they mean to communicate. And you find that not just in St. Augustine, but all over the place. And, and even when it comes to somebody like Didymus the Blind or, or whatever, who's a pretty thorough originist, you get him saying, well, of course, you can allegorize lots of things, but you can't allegorize the resurrection. Right? There, there's, there's a recognition that at some point you have to have an anchor in the literal Otherwise, allegory will fly off into, you know, wherever. And indeed, unless you keep bringing it back to compare with the literal, you're going to lose you lose your bearings pretty much altogether, which is sometimes what happened. Uh, the trouble with the consensus argument is there was also consensus about a whole bunch of ideas that I think are quite wrong. <laughs> There's a whole number of ideas which I think have more to do with Greek philosophy and less to do with the Bible and others, to put it in its more moderate form. And I, I think the reformers were right to draw attention to that and to say, yeah, but what is your warrant for saying that? I mean, in the end of the day, haven't we always said that scripture is fundamentally important in, as a kind of rule here to measure things against? And I think you certainly find ancient, quite ancient Christian writers saying exactly that, like Cyril of Jerusalem and people like that. Um, I think the reformers on this kind of, um, I, I think they were doing, fundamentally they were doing what they said they were doing or trying to do, which doesn't mean they didn't make mistakes as well, because we all make mistakes. Uh, just to go back to the other point though, Austin, I mean, the reason the historical method doesn't get us back to theology is because it's not designed to in the same way that science can't get us any further than the edges of its own domain. When people say that, I think they assume it ought to be able to somehow, but it can't. It's not capable of it. Can we like, talk about what we mean by yeah. that, though? Sorry, I'm not yeah, quite sure. Saying the historical critical method can't. What was your criticism, Austin? Well, it wasn't it was quite that. It was more that it doesn't give us consistent results like a scientific method would, right? Like in the, in the natural sciences, if you apply right. a method... Multiple people can apply it and they get the same results, but every everybody who writes a book on the historical Jesus gives us a different Jesus, right? A different historical Jesus. But there is also then the theological question, which I think you're making, a, I think, a really interesting point beyond that of this this method isn't, isn't designed necessarily to deliver a theology. No, I mean, I, let's take a, a very silly example in a way. Suppose you had been there as a scientist back at the burning bush incident. What could you have discerned about that? Well, you could have probably made a comment on whether the bush was really burning and what kind of bush it was and did bushes like that normally burn like that. But could, would, would you have been able to say anything at all, qua scientist, about the issue of whether God spoke to Moses there or not? Mm-hmm. No, mm-hmm. because science it's just not designed for that to make statements about that, you see. So that's why historical method has been so problematic, I I think, when people don't realize that of its very nature, it's limited in domain. They they can get into a tangle. So how do we, if if the historical method can't help us to get theological content out of the Bible, what can? Well, that kind of historical method can't, but of course my historical method is a different kind of a method. And (laughs) It begins from the with a different epistemology that is compatible with the Christian epistemology, and it moves out from there. 
and it makes appropriate and proper use of science in its domain. It's very attentive to what archaeologists say and what ancient sources say and, and all of that. And it's looking for convergence among all these things in the conviction that all truth is God's truth and ultimately it all fits together even if we can't see yet how it does. Yeah. And that but, takes a lot of the stress out of it, to be honest with you. Yeah. What what then would you say, to get back to the topic of the Old Testament specifically, you know, you've said you read the Old Testament as a Christian as opposed to reading it, say, as a Jew or as anything else. What do, does that mean for you? What do you make of what we would call Christological readings of the Old Testament? Well, that's where your earlier observation that I sound as if I'm more on the historical critical side is, is likely very correct because I want to attend to what the authors meant to say, and they meant to say that in their own time and place against their own cultural background and all the rest of that. So when we say Christological reading, I don't mean that somehow in these various statements, they were really saying something else about Christ, for example. Now, there are texts that do explicitly talk about a coming Messiah and so on, and that's a diff they're a different category. But a lot of Christological reading is imputing to the text things which are not clearly there um, in terms of communicative intent. And I, I don't think we should be doing that. I think it's fine to say that with the benefit of hindsight as a reader of the whole Bible, it is intriguing that, and then to fill in the blank, that uh, there's congruence, there, there's a certain family resemblance, there are hints of plurality in the Godhead in the Old Testament that make a lot of sense once we know there's a trinity. But I think we've got to be just careful how we do that. And when I'm preaching, I'm very careful to do that. So when I make the connections, there are certain kinds of ways I would say it, and there are certain kinds of ways I would not say it. I wonder, uh, just to, to push into this, because I think this is, it's a really interesting question about, there's a, to, if we're going to say raise again, our, we all have kind of metaphysical assumptions and kind of theological tradition that we're bringing to this. You know, the theological reason why someone might say that the Exodus in the book of Exodus is speaking of Christ is because they believe, first of all, the prophets said, there's going to be a new Exodus, right? And so we have these sort of looking forward that the Exodus already is spoken of in the Old Testament as a type of something to come. And then obviously in the Gospels, very clearly, right, Jesus is connected with that. And so to look back and say, not just that's a really intriguing, interesting literary connection, but to say the, the same God who delivered the Israel from Egypt is the God who's incarnate in Christ. Because like Irenaeus, right, he, he has this whole argument. One of his kind of one of the early discussions of divine simplicity comes from Irenaeus. And what he means by divine simplicity is this is one God. And therefore, we read Exodus Christologically. So how do you, are you doing something yeah. different or what's theologically underlying? No, I, I'd be very happy with what you just said there, actually. That would be fine. But what I wouldn't be happy with, with would be so-and-so said these words, and in saying that, he already knew and intended to communicate that this was a truth about Christ. I think that's a step too far, right? It's one thing to say that as we now read the book of Leviticus, it seems in all sorts of ways to foreshadow 
Christ and the church and so on. That's fine. It's true because it is the same God who's working and revealing. But I'm I'm so convinced that taking the literal intent, that the literal intent of the text seriously is is important. I just believe we have to be very careful not to impute to people intentions that they did not visibly have. I, I tend to agree. And I think that the church fathers broadly agree, not always, but they mostly say, and Aquinas, I think, really is clear about this, right? So Aquinas kind of famously wanted to root the senses of scripture more firmly in the literal sense than he saw sometimes happening in the patristic literature. But what he mm-hmm. said, the literal sense is the sense intended by the author, which is God. I don't yeah, think that's enough. That. Yeah, that, 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 that would be a very good point there. I mean, one of the reasons Aquinas... I think was so determined about this was because he was dealing with all these, these all heretical movements that were once again going off with allegory and creating new doctrine out of it. And so he lived at a moment when this, at, at different moments in history, this has become very, very important, right? What's the relationship between the truth and the reading, right? I don't think it's enough just to say the author is God because God has chosen, in fact, to communicate to us through human authors who lived in times and places. It's it's theologically significant that that is true. It's not just accidentally true. We have these kinds of scriptures. We don't have other kinds of scriptures. We don't have the Quran, very different kind of book. We don't, I mean, and you can then go out to other traditions with sacred literature, but we don't have those kinds of literature. We have this kind of literature that's theologically important and therefore hermeneutically important. And we we need to attend to the shape and the nature of it. So I, I would say it's very important to keep the two things, the human intent and the divine intent together, even though when the human authors come together as a library of books, you can begin to see larger things than they saw true things because god is the one speaking through the whole thing so i think we just have to try and hold these things together and we're continually flying off into one or the other we're great creatures of disintegration with either or mentalities yeah either god speaks or human beings are speaking you know so the one would be the kind of more extreme allegorical approach god speaks straight to me by way of the holy spirit and i don't need anything else to, you know, which Augustine was very much against, are the kind of, the very, very hidebound historical, critical people. The only proper meaning you can get from this text is this one here, what Amos said to that people group back in the eighth century, right? Well, you sound, you sound more like that. Wouldn't you describe yourself there? It depends who I think the enemy is at any given point. I'm trying not (laughs) to sound, I'm trying to be integrated. I'm trying actually to hold these things together because I think they need to be. Yeah. Um, yeah, fair enough. Fair Christian enough. Faith, the Christian faith, isn't it? I mean, doctrinally, even it's all about holding things together, isn't it? I mean, oh, absolutely. He- heresy very often is oversimplification, isn't it? Historically, mm-hmm. so, yeah, very much agree. Yeah, yeah. Do you think uh, when the prophets say that the Exodus is a type of something to come, that they therefore think that the person who wrote the Book of Exodus also thought that? I don't know if they know that they thought it because we have that interesting text in Peter, or is it Hebrews, which one about men moved by the spirit, et cetera, sad. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I'm not sure that they're necessarily thinking of conscious intent either. And I don't think St. Augustine was either, so far as I read on Christian doctrine. He's very, 
very strong on getting a hold of the ancient idioms and learning the ancient languages, even though his own language learning apparently was quite limited, but he, he advocated it nonetheless. And so I, I think that um, I suspect the answer, Austin, to that would be when you go back and read, you would find different people saying different things about that. I mean, that's just my yeah, impression. Mm-hmm. But I, I know what I believe we should should best think about that kind of thing. Yeah. May I mention my new book as we end? Would that be naughty or would it all be okay? No, go for it. Why not? Yeah. It's called Cuckoos in Our Nest, Truth and Lies About Being Human. And it's all about Christian anthropology, the Christian view of the human person, identifying it, knowing what it is, identifying alien ideas, which is where the cuckoos come in and being able to, and it's written for ordinary literate readers. Each chapter is only four pages long. There are 50 of them, but they're deliberately designed not to intimidate, just one by one by one. And um, I hope it will be very helpful. And if you could I'll put a link to that in the the episode. Grateful. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I was looking at it just recently. I think a blurb about it. It looks really fascinating. I look forward to picking it up. Thank you for listening to Faith at the Frontiers, a podcast produced in collaboration with The Tablet. If you liked this episode, then do subscribe to hear more like it in the future. For now, goodbye. Goodbye.